Have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 certainly is an old story, but it has a very modern day application. And in fact, linguistically, it's directly connected to the New Testament and your and my everyday existence. It has been said, faith which can't be tested can't be trusted, which means a faith that is actually going to endure and that we can lean on must be able to endure times of testing or trials. As we have worked through the book of Ezra, we have encountered the reality that God's people have returned to Jerusalem and have renewed right worship of God. They have done the right thing. They have taken a big step of faith. They have undertaken a difficult assignment. It's been challenging. God has stirred them and they're working. They're moving forward. It's a fact that whenever God initiates a spiritual work, there is bound to be resistance. We, you and I, every day of our lives, every moment, are engaged in a spiritual warfare. We might think we have a battle with our neighbor or our coworker. Our battles are not carnal, they are spiritual. Listen as the Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians 6. Just note what we're up against in verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but rather we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That sounds like real battle. That sounds like we are outmatched, outnumbered. The Bible names our adversary, my adversary, and your adversary. He's relentless. He is destructive. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, who is none other than the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Peter told us, I'm sorry, Paul told us about the world in which we live. In the second part of Ephesians 2 and verse 2, he speaks of the course of this world. That is according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil. The spirit that now is at work in the children of disobedience. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. We have a named adversary who is relentless and destructive. We live in a world that is under his rule, under the spirit of the devil. John said this, the whole world lieth in wickedness. This entire world system and all that goes into it lieth in wickedness. John uses that specific term, the world system. What is that world system? It is truly godless in its values. Anti-God in its ambition. God denying in its pleasures. It is a fallen world system that is subject to and operated by none other than the evil one, the devil. John, 
Paul are referring to a world system that defies the authority of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our world in which we live and act and move. Our faith is in this world. There's a definitive statement on spiritual warfare that the Apostle Paul gives in the book of 2 Corinthians. Listen in. For though we walk in the flesh, that's how we live our lives, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, spiritual warfare. Not neighbor versus neighbor or coworker versus coworker, but rather truth versus lies. The doctrine of God versus the doctrine of the devil, even the word strongholds that the apostle uses in 2 Corinthians conjures up the idea of knights in armor, swords and spears. In other words, Satan himself has humanity captive. The reality is they are imprisoned by his false doctrine and we as children of the Lord going forth armed with the weapon of truth which is the word of God seek to liberate those captives. And we cannot imagine that the devil will go down without a fight. I want to emphasize the reality of spiritual warfare as we arrive at Ezra chapter 4. You ever stop to meditate on your and my adversary, the devil? The names of the devil tell us a lot about his nature. He's called Satan in Job chapter 1. That refers to his role as the adversary of God. The adversary of God's people. He's called the devil, of course. That is the accuser. He is constantly accusing God before people and people before God. He's known in John 8, 44 as the father of lies. His native tongue is one of deception. When he lies, he reveals who he is at the core, the father of lies. He is the God, little g, of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is at this moment ruling as that spiritual darkness. He's the enemy, Matthew 13 tells us. He's known as the wicked one in 1 John chapter 2. Peter has already told us he is our adversary and his aim is our destruction. This is what we are ceaselessly up against. He is dedicated to destroying the worship of the one true living God. He covets that worship. That is what he wants to destroy. And so I can say to you as a little bit of a background study, any Christian, any individual, any mom, any dad, anybody in the workforce who is trying to take a step forward and bring glory to God and honor God with their life, any church that is trying to move forward will become an enemy, little e, of the enemy, capital E. You will find a headwind whenever you align your purpose in life to glorify God. The one who opposes God ceaselessly will now oppose you. In short, when God moves, the devil attacks. We have been studying here in Ezra and we have made note of the fact that a renewal is underway. 
50,000 people have left the captivity of Babylon and undertaken a very difficult and treacherous journey to arrive back at Jerusalem. They have undertaken the rebuilding of what is at this moment in time mere rubble, the altar and the temple. When we arrived in Ezra chapter 3, as we studied last week, they reinstituted many of the sacrifices, and the foundation of the temple was laid, and they had an incredible worship service. They're praising God. The noise was so loud of their praise and intermixed with some weeping that the nations in the surrounding area took note. They took note of the renewed activity around Jerusalem. They took note probably of the smoke rising into the air. They took note of the songs of praise and there was some agitation. That brings us to Ezra chapter 4. And the language of Ezra 4 is going to illuminate for us our reality. Let's listen in. Here's verse 1 of Ezra 4. Now when, and I want you to immediately note this word, it jumps off the page, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel then. Now, then, as soon as there was renewed activity at Jerusalem Then all of a sudden they come to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus the king of Persia hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah. Troubled them in building. Hired counselors against them. Note this phrase. To frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, under attack, a big step forward and winds of resistance arrive. The adversaries arrive on the scene because movement forward for God has happened and we note they were there to frustrate their purpose. Please specifically see a word here in verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now listen, if you weren't amped enough for a minor prophet study, how about we go ahead and tackle some Hebrew and Greek? Right? Pretty. Look, I'm hanging on by a thread. I've already preached this once. I'm going to tell you, the 945 service, they loved this part. They loved it. Here's something that we've got to see. In verse 1, the adversaries arrive. Now, they arrive in the form of the Samaritans, but man, we grasp this is spiritual warfare. They are there to frustrate the purposes of God's people. And by the time we get to verse 6, we note that an accusation is made. I want you to see the relevance, the linguistic picture. Grasp the tie-in. The Hebrew word there for accusation 
is aligned and related to the Greek word that is translated Satan in Revelation 12.9, the accuser of the brethren. Ultimately, he is the instigator of all human malice against Christians. What we must understand is the devil who ceaselessly sought to thwart the move of God in Ezra 4 is the adversary that you and I engage in battle with ceaselessly. It's happening here and it's happening now. Make no mistake about it. The opposition arrives here in Ezra 4 in the form of the Samaritans, but it is spiritual in nature. Now, if you are at all a student of the Bible, you have before encountered the Samaritans. In fact, if you really understand the history of the Samaritans, it stands out in the New Testament that Jesus would dare tell the Pharisees a story about a good Samaritan. That Jesus, with his grace and love, would interact with a Samaritan woman. Now, here's the deal. If minor prophets don't thrill you, and Greek and Hebrew words don't thrill you, how about a little Samaritan history? How about going all the way back to 722 B.C., when Shalmaneser V invaded the northern tribes of Israel and took many of them captive? The Israelites who remained in the land intermarried with many of the incoming Gentiles. And in doing so, they went against the law of God to not intermarry with pagan, false god worshipers. It got really ugly. In fact, people would look at the Samaritans and they would call them half-breeds. That's the descendants of this intermixed marriages, the Samaritans. It got really bad. In fact, even to this day, if you have a staunch Orthodox Jewish home and they marry a Gentile, many times their funeral is carried out at the same time. The Pharisees in the New Testament would even pray when the resurrection happens, Lord, don't take any Samaritans up. Keep the Samaritans down here. I mean, these are openly the enemies of God's people. And here, in verse 1, and verse 2, and verse 3, the Samaritans arrive on the scene. And they are seemingly there to help. They've seen the increased activity, and their arrival is actually quite subtle. We learn what believers like you and I have to do when frustrating adversaries arrive on the scene. Notice the first temptation is an invitation to compromise. You say, what? An invitation to compromise? I didn't see it. Verse 2, then they, that's the Samaritans, came to Zerubbabel, the leader of this rebuilding process came to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Here come the Samaritans. Now, we've already been clued in because we're looking in hindsight. Ezra already told us they're adversaries. They aren't good people. They're not nice. They're here to cause trouble. But when they arrive on the scene, they show up with an offer to help. It's unsolicited help. Let us build with you. 
Now, according to 2 Kings 17 and verse 33, here's what we know about the Samaritans. They aren't lying. They actually do worship God. The problem is they're polytheistic. They worship a lot of gods, and the true God is just one that they worship. Here's what 2 Kings 17.33 says of them. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of nations whom they carried away from thence. We seek, we serve your God. That's what the Samaritans were saying. We want to build with you. We want to be on your team. We want to come in and be a part of what you're doing. This is nothing less than an invitation to compromise. We've already been told that they are adversaries. Now let this sink in. Here the children of Israel have arrived, 50,000 strong, to undertake this treacherous journey and this really hard building project. They're setting everything right. They're restoring worship. They're renewing the glory of God. They're renewing, honoring God. And here come the Samaritans. They arrive on the scene and they say, let us build with you. It would be rude to say no, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd be a major jerk to look at this group of people who have come to offer help and to say no to them. But notice what happens in verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us. You have nothing to do with this building process. You have nothing to do with what we're doing here for our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. That's so mean. How many of you love... Spiritual condescension and self-righteousness. Do you love it? It's so appealing, isn't it, to be around self-righteous, spiritually condescending people. You see, when we arrive here, we think to ourselves, and that's it. That's the kernel. That's what I hate about God's people. Here come the Samaritans. Let us build with you. We also serve your God. And you, Zerubbabel, have the audacity to say, you have nothing to do with us. Pharisees. Legalists. Now, in real technicality here in Ezra 4, they were actually legalists at this moment in time. But I want you to grasp something inherent in their response. This is not Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the chief of the fathers looking at the Samaritans and saying, you know what, your robes are too short, you can't build with us. This isn't Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the chief of the fathers saying, you know, when you guys arrived, you had on some really modern sandals, and we know that God is not in modern sandals, you can't build with us. This wasn't them saying, we don't like how you do mortar with the brick. You can't build with us because you don't build exactly like us. This wasn't about methodology. This was not about preference. This was not spiritual condescension. This was not judging their heart condition. This was knowing the word and knowing the mandate of God and fiercely being obedient to it. You can almost hear in verse 2 the. Samaritans saying, listen, just loosen up, man. We will help you build. 
Well, what do you mean you have nothing in common with us? We've added your God to our lists of gods. Don't be so intolerant of our religion. It works for us. But Zerubbabel and the others knew this was actually a battle over truth. That God had said in Exodus 20 and verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They weren't not mixing with them because of how they stirred the mortar or laid the brick or wore their robes or wore their sandals. They understood this was a matter in time that they could not compromise truth. They could not allow the Samaritans to be a part of what was going on because the Samaritans did not properly worship God. The New Testament warns us in this way, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Believers, modern day, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? One wrote of this verse and said, The Christian is not to be discourteous or detached from unbelievers. Rather, he is to befriend them, to gain an opening to present the gospel. But he ought never to keep their friendship by compromising his convictions. What seems like a big fat jerk response to say you have nothing to do with us is actually a moment where the Israelites avoided disaster. They saw through the invitation to compromise. They refused to capitulate. Ezra 4 teaches us something that the New Testament teaches us. Believers are distinct from non-believers. And believers can allow nothing to blur that distinction. And it would be really easy if the enemy, every time he showed up, showed up with a three-pronged pitchfork, horns on his head, and a long tail with an arrow point on the end of it. Wouldn't it be easier? If every time you encountered spiritual warfare, you could go, there he is, that's the devil. That's the bad one. That's the one we're to avoid. We'll have nothing to do with him. Look, there he is. It's the enemy. But here's something that's really insidious and evil about our enemy, and it's almost scary to encounter. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11. No marvel. Do not be amazed by this. Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing. It's just not that amazing. It's just not that hard to think of that his ministers can also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, who, by the way, their end shall be according to their works. Here's what Paul is saying. You and I are engaged in spiritual warfare. Our faith will be tested with invitations to compromise. Now, you're not fighting your neighbor and you're not battling your coworker, but rather the prince of the power of this wicked world. It is spiritual in nature. You're engaged in it and he will come after you. As we understand what he's communicating here and now, he says, here's the really tricky part. You many times are not going to see him as the roaring lion that he actually is. 
Because a lot of times what the devil actually looks like is me. What the devil oftentimes actually looks like is a guy with a smile on his face telling you enough truth to make it appear like he's telling you the truth, but perverting just enough of the truth to remove the potency of the message. He'll fill rooms with thousands of people, and we now here have more access to theology and preachers and teachers and gurus of all kinds, and we think that the devil will stand there with his pitchfork and his horns and his tail, but many times he looks like you, and he looks like me, and he smiles bright, and he has thousands of people listening, and actually in the end, he'll be rewarded according to his works. Christians must be on guard against those who pretend to be godly, but are not. Must be on guard against them because there are many who try to transform themselves into ministers of righteousness by wearing a false disguise. And the devil's that insidious and he's that hateful. In fact, when we read of the last day and the perilous times, we're told there will be many that have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Behold, you believers, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You don't have to ball up your fist and fight. You don't have to scream and shout. The warfare you're engaged in is spiritual. Be wise and be harmless. Don't be a fool. There is ever and always an invitation to compromise. It arrives here on the scene and they say, let us help you. We also serve your God. But they were outright liars. Here's the second thing that happens, verse 4. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now they show up with an attack of intimidation. Just follow and let the Bible tell you its story. As soon as there's renewed activity in Jerusalem and the worship of God is being rightly reinstated, as soon as they take a step forward, then, that word is used twice, the inhabitants of the land now switch tactics. There are many people in the surrounding communities around Jerusalem and they form an alliance together with the intent of weakening the hands of the people. They discourage them. The essence of discouragement is to become weak, to sink down, to lose the ability to carry on. To cause God's people to despair. And fear is at the root of it. That's what they're trying to do. Scare them into submission. They tried the same tactic on Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah, stop working. Nehemiah, go hide. Nehemiah, be afraid. Yet Nehemiah does not capitulate. Have you noticed? Have you ever considered? Have you ever thought about? How the devil can get to you. 
how good he is at getting to our weaknesses. Now, I'd venture to say you have done the right thing and you're already outstanding in the fact that you're here. I don't know that anyone here is going to be tossed about by the winds of doctrine, though certainly it can happen. However, I definitely believe that intimidation can work on us. One wrote this, have you discovered that the enemy usually attacks along those lines? For some, impure doctrine is their downfall. They don't know the scripture. They're tossed about by every wind of doctrine. They're vulnerable to false teachers and religious fads. They never grow. They're always needy. They cannot think critically or doctrinally or theologically. But for others, doctrine is solid. But their emotions become their downfall. Unable to stand the pain of ridicule or rejection or discouragement or isolation or trial or disappointment, ultimately they curl up and they keep their faith silent. He wins out because he gets you to zip your lips. Now I have what some may view as a privilege of working in the everyday world amongst church people. You say, so everybody's always nice and kind and does the right thing. Eh, we'd go out of business if that was the case. I don't work in the world that many of you work in. And here is what can happen. The enemy intimidates us into silence. He works on our emotion. It is clear in verse 6 and 7 that the attack was ceaseless. It was endless. In verse 6 he says it was in the reign of Ahasuerus. In the beginning of his reign he says in verse 7 that it went all the way unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia. It began in the days of Cyrus and it dragged on for over 80 years. All the way until the reign of Artaxerxes. It's true, as one wrote, relentless conflict and intense temptation are like water that wears away the stone. He just never stops. How many of you can remember when you were first exploring the deep end of the pool? Anybody? First exploring the deep end of the pool, you would work your way down along the wall and you would feel with your toes for the bottom of the pool and eventually you'd get out, you'd get a little brave and you'd get where your toes could touch and you could hop up and you could get just a breath of air and then you'd have that moment of panic and fear where you realized now the bottom is deeper than it once was and it's hard for me to bounce up and you start panicking. If you had one of those siblings or you had one of those cousins or that rare dad who would watch you break the surface of the water and he would just flick a little splash of water at you. Just flick a little splash. So you'd come up for air and in the face. And though you are mere feet from the edge and we're working on the assumption that your sibling or your cousin or your uncle or your dad will not actually let you die. They will help you get to the edge. But in your young mind, you're thinking to yourself, this is how it ends. With a mouthful of chlorine, I'm going from here to my halo and my wings. It's over. Every time I try to draw a breath, there's a splash of water. Every time my feet hit the bottom and I bounce to the top to draw a breath, I go back down again. It will never relent. It will never stop. I'll never draw another breath of clean air. That is how the devil works. 
He couldn't get them to capitulate with that simple compromise. So he ratchets it up and all the people from the surrounding communities come together to frustrate their purpose and they gnaw at them and they gnaw at them and they gnaw at them. They hire professional discouragers to counsel against them, to drag them down. In Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah will watch the people rebuilding the walls and they come and they say, if a fox even ran into the wall, it would knock it down. They make fun of your work. They make fun of your testimony. They make fun of everything that you're doing. They beat you down and every time you try to get a breath, there's another splash of water. For 80 years, these people sent letters For 80 years, they tried to discourage them, and it works. Notice verse 24. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They did it. The enemy, he got them to stop. 50,000 people trying to do the right thing. And when they try to do the right thing, opposition arise. Try to draw one breath. He just never quits. 80 years, man. They're professional discouragers fighting, 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 fighting until finally they quit. The devil knows how to get to each of us. I would refer to myself as a wind in the sails guy. And really, it doesn't help me much. Pastor, you're doing a good job. Thank you. Pastor, we love you. Thank you. Pastor, that was a great sermon. Thank you. Pastor, we really like the new building. Thank you. Pastor, we love your family. Thank you. Pastor, can I ask you a question about the nursery and tell you something about the chairs? No. I quit. I hate my job. I hate you. I hate the chairs. I don't ever want to do this anymore. That's it. I'm going to go get in my car and shut the door as hard as I can, rev my four-cylinder up, rip out of the driveway, roll my window down and throw my church cell phone into a field somewhere, move to the Bahamas and rent umbrellas on the beach. I quit. You say, really, just one complaint? Yeah, really, just one complaint. And you know you're similar to me. It just doesn't take much for him to get at our emotional state. I can stand the wind of doctrine. I've been at it long enough. I feel rooted and I'm not impervious to it, but I feel like I know right from wrong and truth from error, but I'll tell you what he can do to me is he can get the people from the surrounding villages to circle the wagons and say a few things about the wall I'm building or about this little foundation that I've done, and I think, okay, good, yeah, great, I quit. I hated it anyway. I didn't want to come. I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be a part of it. That's what happens. He's ceaseless and they ceased. It's a a moment where they try to get you to compromise. It's an invitation to compromise. No. Then they change tactics and they intimidate them into fear. And what happens is the people quit. It's an instance of lost passion. Now I happen to be partial to what God uses to help the people in this moment because he uses preachers. He uses more minor prophets. And when you really grasp how the Old Testament is woven together, it illuminates us, it helps us. Haggai and Zechariah, books that you probably 
really struggle to pronounce, much less read. Haggai and Zechariah are preachers that God sends in this moment in time. He sends them to Jerusalem when the work has ceased, when the hands of Zerubbabel and Jeshua are weak, when their chin is down and they're sitting in the dust and the work of God has ceased. He sends Haggai and Haggai steps onto the scene and he preaches and here's what he says in Haggai 1 and verse 4. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What had happened is this. The people had ceased rebuilding the temple and they had begun to build their houses. When at first they were on fire and at first they were doing great and they were there neglecting their own empire and focusing on God, when they were discouraged and frustrated, they ceased working on the things of God and pivoted to building their sealed houses. You think sealed houses are pretty good though, right? They're like waterproof, not that kind of sealed. This is literally, they're paneling their houses. They're building luxurious houses to the neglect of the house of God. And Haggai shows up and he says, hey, Hey, get busy. You've quit. Your chin is down. Buck up. Get back after it. Consider your ways. Make God's priorities your priorities. Don't stop doing what you're doing. One said this. While not minimizing the peril of their situation, it's evident it is evident from Haggai's prophecy that their own enthusiasm for the work had waned. There is no evidence in here that they take a petition to God in prayer and say, God, help us. The surrounding communities are working against us. There is no evidence in here that they petition the king. Please save us from the enemies. The fact is they capitulate. And we're forced to conclude that they capitulate too easily. He wrote all too often, believers in our own day do the same. Giving up with hardly a struggle as soon as opposition arises against the Lord's word. Make no mistake about it. This church is full of people who are striving to do the right thing. Your presence here is evidence of that endeavor. You are trying desperately to live right. Maybe to salvage a marriage. Maybe to pour into your kids. Maybe to honor God. You're taking steps in the right direction and the enemy arrives and splashes water in your face. And the pressure on us is to quit because it seems like if we just quit, the stress will be alleviated and the pressure will be off. And what ends up happening is rather than putting up a fight, believers capitulate too easy. He went on to say, to those who are on the brink of resigning from some Christian ministry, from doing the right thing, from pursuing to honor God Whatever the stress, whatever the strain, it's too soon to quit. Don't give Satan the victory by relinquishing your post of duty. Stay in the game. Pick your chin up. One more step. How do I do it? Eyes on Jesus. 
eyes on Jesus. Zechariah is the other preacher who shows up on the scene, and I love this. He is sent specifically to Zerubbabel. He's got a message for him. Zerubbabel, no doubt in my mind at this point in time, feels like an absolute failure. He was sent to lead this construction project, and the work has ceased, and it has ceased for a long period of time. His chin is down. I have no doubt about it. Haggai has shown up and he's yelling at everybody, get busy and make God's priorities your priorities. But there's just no traction to it. So God gets Zechariah and he says to Zechariah, I have something I want you to go to Zerubbabel to tell him. Here he's preaching in Zechariah 4, 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, Zechariah, saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, say this to him, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah, I want you to encourage the discouraged. I want you to strengthen the defeated. I want you to enable the disabled. I want you to go to him and tell him that he can do it. I want you to be clear with him. It's not about your power. It's not about your technique. It's not about your might. It's not about your finesse. It's not about your talent. Tell him and all the other discouraged believers that have put their trowels down that it's all about me. Anything that has ever been built for the kingdom of God has never been built by the power or talent or finesse or technique of man. It has always been built by the Spirit of God. It's not about you. Your emotional beat down because you're reliant on your own strength. They have an instance of lost passion because they have been reliant on their own finesse, their own talent, their own technique. And Zechariah shows up and he says, hey Zerubbabel, chin up man. Hand up. Stand back up out of the dust. Find your trowel. Get back after it. It's not about you. God can do this by his spirit. I want you to grasp this and I'm done. You're trying to do the right thing. There's a little noise coming out of Jerusalem, and the enemy has taken note. And he'll arrive as a minister of light, and he will try to seduce you with just enough truth to buy in, but deception lies behind it. Don't give in to the invitation to compromise. Stand with truth. When he cannot get you on your doctrine, he will attack your emotions and it is ceaseless, always splashing water in your face. One step forward and the wind seems to blow just a little stronger. And there may be even some in here who have flat out quit. And when you flat out quit and you see the foundation and it's been a long time since you've worked and it's been a long time since you've built and it's been a long time since you've picked up a trowel, you start to feel useless. And Zachariah's message is for those where he says, hey, chin up, I can still use you. Chin up, there's still work to do. Chin up, get back up and shake the dust off. Be busy when you've been brought to a standstill. Remember, to stand still. Not by might, not by power, your talent, technique, or finesse, but by the Spirit of God. Eyes on Jesus. Faith which cannot be tested, cannot be trusted. Your and my faith will inevitably be tested. God, help us to stand and stay busy. Would you just for a moment please bow your heads with me.
Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.